This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court spared Google what could have been a multi-billion dollar award and allowed tech firms a sigh of relief on Monday when it ruled that Google did not commit copyright infringement by copying Oracle programming code to develop the Android operating system now used on most smartphones. Writing for the majority in the landmark decision, Justice Stephen Breyer said Google's copying was legitimate fair use, using a recipe-finding robot as part of an analogy, reminiscent of the analogies the justices had peppered the lawyers with during the oral arguments to discern what is copyrightable. Here are Justice Breyer, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Justice Elena Kagan. You didn't have to have a QWERTY keyboard on typewriters at the beginning, but my God, If you let somebody have a copyright on that now, they would control all typewriters, which really has nothing to do with uh, copyright. Let's say you want to open uh, a restaurant. You've got a great new chef. He's got great new dishes. uh, And you say, well, we've got to figure out what the menu should look like. You know, of course, you're going to have, you know, appetizers first and entrees and then desserts. Now, you shouldn't have to worry about whether that organization is copyrighted. Suppose I own a grocery store and I come up with a really terrific way of organizing all my fresh produce, all my fruits and vegetables into these categories and subcategories, very intuitive for the shopper. And um, uh, this is not the standard way. So uh, it's different from the Chief Justice's hypothetical in that way. It's novel uh, and it's great. Joining me is Sean Balganesh, a professor at Columbia Law School. Are people correct in calling this a landmark decision? I think absolutely. The, the way I would put it is people had initially expected it to be the copyright case of the century. I don't think it's the copyright case of the century. It's a copyright case of the last half century in the sense that the biggest question on copyright ability that the court sidestepped would have entailed in examining such a critical issue in copyright that dates back to the 19th century. It did not do that. But fair use being so critical to the copyright in many ways, breathing life into the copyright system has been reinvigorated. So unquestionably, it's a landmark. I would say it's even more than a landmark. It's probably the biggest copyright case in in, in at least a few decades. For those who don't know that much about computer code, tell us what the dispute was about. So the case basically entails Google copying what are known as parts of application program interfaces from Sun's Java system or APIs. And and parts of it, not the entire thing. And let me explain what APIs are in very basic terms. APIs represent packages of pre-written computer code that are contained in a Java library, and they're meant to be able to be taken off the shelf to be reintegrated into another program so that it saves software programmers significant time and such. And what Google did when it was designing its Android platform for smartphones technology, it decides in order to ensure that programmers who are already familiar with Java would be able to carry over their skills and knowledge base to the new platform, it decides to copy a portion of Sun's API, 37 of Sun's application program interfaces or the pre-written packages. It copies a portion of them called the declaring code. So let me explain the different kinds of code that exist within these pre-written packages because the case involves, very importantly, the distinction between these kinds of codes. So as I said, the APIs are pre-written packages of code. 
But the APIs contain two primary forms of code, according to both parties. The first one is referred to as declaring code. And the best way to understand the declaring code is that it's a code or it's the, the part of the API that describes the function of the package or the task of the package. So these are the lines of the code that basically allow someone who's using the code or someone who's implementing it later on to know what the package is for. The, the best way to understand it, again, in terms of an analogy, and there were a lot of analogies thrown out in this case during oral argument and in the brief, were that the declaring code is something like a header or like an index or a glossary that indicates what the package is about. Now, very distinct from the declaring code was something called the implementing code. The implementing code is the actual functional code of the API, the application program interface, which executes the task which the package is meant to perform, right? Now, very, very importantly, Google had copied about 11,500 lines only of the declaring code from 37 of these pre-written packages or APIs. Google did not copy any of the implementing code that Oracle owned. Right. And so the entire case revolved around Google's copying of these 11,500 lines of declaring code from the, the Java API uh, library that Oracle owned. And obviously, Oracle sued for copyright infringement, claiming that this was copying not just of the code, of the declaring code itself, but also the organizational structure, the way in which these headers had been organized in the library, something referred to as the structure, sequence, and organization of the code, of the declaring code, had also been copied. So, so the case entirely, I guess, just in summary after that long response, involved Google's copying of the declaring code from 37 pre-written packages called APIs that were owned by Oracle. What were the issues before the court? So it's important to understand that when the court took the case, there were two principal issues that were argued. The first one was whether the declaring code itself and its organizational structure, the SSO, were copyrightable under copyright rule that excludes protection for functional content, for functional expression, right? Um, and the second issue was whether the copying by Google, even assuming it was copyrightable content, would constitute fair use. The court ducked the first question and moved to the second one, saying that we want to resolve it uh, because the first question would be a little too technological intensive, technologically intensive. And, and it answers the second question by saying that let's look at the nature of the code. So what the court does is it takes the four fair use factors that are codified in the statute, the copyright statute. But one of the interesting things that Justice Breyer does in his majority opinion is he, 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 he sort of expands and reinterprets these factors in a way that makes them applicable to computer software. So he says, so for instance, the first factor that he uses is a factor that hasn't been used extensively in the prior jurisprudence, a factor known as the nature of the copyrighted work. Most courts have said it's probably the least important factor in the overall fair use analysis. Justice Breyer says, actually for computer software, it is perhaps one of the, if not the most important factors, and it allows us to sift between the types of computer code that are at issue in a software. So now, why did the court find that Google's use of that code was fair use? Writing for the majority, Justice Breyer focuses on, uh, I, I would say, a couple of the fair use factors more than the others to find that it is fair use. 
here the most important thing to note is that he takes the statutory factors and he modifies them for the context of computer software. So what's very important is how he adapts fair use for computer software. So to illustrate this through the factors that he relies on, an important fair use factor, the second factor in the statute is something called the nature of the copyrighted work. Breyer spends a lot of time on this factor showing how it can be used to differentiate between different forms of computer code. And he says, well, because we're dealing with this declaring code, which has this function like a header or an index and not the implementing code, we have to approach it differently. And because it's functional code of this declaring time, uh, it isn't really to be given as much protection as the implementing code because Google didn't copy the implementing code. So that factor he finds very importantly allows him to recognize that what Google did could constitute a stronger case for fair use under the factor because the nature of what it copied wasn't core or central to copyright. Another important factor, and perhaps uh, one of the most important in his analysis, is his conclusion that what Google did is was engaging in a form of what is called interoperability, trying to allow software programmers to use their knowledge and awareness of the Java platform in developing the Android apps and the Android framework so that it could be compatible back with Java. This interoperability, he basically says, gives the copying a new purpose. And this new purpose was something that he weighed very heavily to say that it could constitute a transformative use, a transformative use under the fair use analysis. And this, again, he weighs very heavily in favor of Google. And the last thing of the other, I think, most important factor that he relies on is to say, let's just not focus on the commercial harm that Oracle suffered, but let's really focus on the public benefit as well from Google's actions. Let's look at how the interoperability and the development of a new platform expands public benefit. And therefore, he says, the economic harm should be weighed against the benefit, and this favors Google as well. So I think these three factors are the most important in his analysis, and that's why he finds there to be fair use. But I think the key point, really, more than anything else, is he expands each of these factors and tailors it for computer software in new and interesting ways. Let's talk about the dissent written by Clarence Thomas. Because he said that this wasn't fair use, Google erased 97.5% of the value of Oracle's partnership with Amazon. And he also criticizes the fact that the court didn't decide whether or not this code was copyrightable. So what do you think of his dissent? So Justice Thomas's dissent, very interestingly, um, is it, very close to what many people expected after oral argument would be the court's majority position. In the oral argument, most of the justices were asking the lawyers questions about copyrightability and how they could reconcile, especially Google's lawyer, how they, Google could reconcile its position with the text of the statute, which says that computer code is copyrightable and it doesn't draw a distinction between different forms of computer code. Justice Thomas really builds on that in his dissenting opinion, saying, look, the court basically sidestepped the critical question of whether declaring code is copyrightable at all and reintroduces this copyrightability or the extent of copyright protection analysis into fair use. And he sees that as circumventing Congress's policy in the statute, right? So in his view, if you look at the text of the statute, there is no distinction between declaring code and implementing code. And what the court is doing in his view is 
introducing an artificial distinction that runs counter to congressional policy and very importantly runs counter to the text of the statute, right? And that's Justice Thomas's view. And so he first faults the court for sidestepping this question because he's acutely aware of the fact that the majority is reintroducing this analysis under the rubric of the nature of the copyrighted work in fair use. But even on the majority's own terms, Justice Thomas recognizes that the majority is expanding the domain of fair use on every one of these factors. So to go back to what you indicated, his, his discussion of the value of Oracle that was eviscerated, he says, look, this is a, a astoundingly new expansion of the concept of market harm in the fourth fair use factor, where we've examined what kind of harm the copyright owner suffers in the existing market or in future markets. We've never really examined public benefits. The statute doesn't talk about the public benefits. The statute doesn't talk about cost-benefit analysis. It focuses on the harm to the existing or potential value of the work. And so that's why he faults the majority for expanding each of the fair use factors in a way that doesn't hew closely to the text. I think this was not unexpected. Um, Justice Thomas, in many ways, is channeling his textualism and the need for the court to be uh, aware of its appropriate role in the copyright system to, to speak to the text and to not second-guess Congress's policy decisions that are apparent in the text. And what he sees the majority doing is violating that rule. But in defense of the majority's opinion, um, by pushing everything into fair use, fair use has been recognized as this domain where judges have significant freedom. Fair use is effectively a judge-made doctrine that is in the statute today, but Congress wanted courts to continue to develop it. So Justice Breyer, by pushing all of these decisions or all of these elements and expansions into fair use, has in many ways a perfect response to Justice Thomas's textualism, basically by saying, well, fair use is not a textualist doctrine. Fair use is a doctrine that is judge-made. And so does this decision then expand the idea of fair use in computer software? Oh, I think it absolutely does. I think there are three ways in which it does. There's a, there's a short-term implication, there's a medium-term implication, and, and then there's a long-term implication that goes beyond computer software. I think the first thing in the short term is it reinforces the idea that fair use protects borrowing in the context of computer software. That interoperability, right, the compatibility between developing technologies and older ones is an important value that should be factored into the fair use analysis. That had already been nascent in some prior case law, but the Supreme Court reaffirms that by saying it's important, and very importantly, if it's significant enough, it constitutes a transformative use. So I think it makes that, that short-term expansion, which is a reaffirmation. Uh, but I think what it also does, and this is the second point, um, in the medium term, by, by saying that there's one particular factor in the fair use analysis that is a particularly appropriate for computer software, namely this factor called the nature of the copyrighted work, um, it allows courts in the future to be able to examine types of computer software that are being litigated uh, for copyright infringement. So if I had to guess the medium term is the implication is that fair use is going to be the next frontier of litigation for computer software. Types of code, classifications between them, and the extent to which some of them are more purely functional as opposed to implementation of the program uh, is something that we're going to start seeing courts do under the rubric of the fair use analysis. And, it, and then the last thing is in the long term, I think the implications of the court's fair use decision go well beyond computer software. 
um, I think the signals that Justice Breyer and the majority send for the interpretation of fair use uh, in the long term, we're going to see uh, carry over beyond computer software and, and liberate the doctrine from the text of the statute, um, say that most of it can be decided by a judge, you don't have to rely on a jury, and that fair use, very importantly, is a way of determining the scope of the work, the scope of protection in a work. Um, so I think fair use very much is front and center and, and has been given a new invigorated role. So then does this decision settle questions for tech companies or does it open more questions and more litigation about fair use? I think it settles some right now in the short term and it opens up more litigation for fair use in different ways. And let me explain why. I think the court sidestepping the question of copyrightability in the abstract for computer software allows tech companies to continue to develop and work under the assumption that computer software obtains protection under the copyright statute without any problem. I think one of the big concerns that some had voiced, certainly some amici had voiced, was that the court could question the entire availability of copyright for computer software. The court did no such thing. So I think in that sense, the status quo is preserved, at least for now. But insofar as fair use is going to become the next battleground, let's not forget that fair use is a very fact-intensive determination. Fair use is not a determination that happens completely in the abstract. It's case by case, it's based on a factual record, and it involves a determination of what the borrowing entailed or how much was taken and what its impact was. So I don't think that in the abstract it's going to cause any problems, but to the extent that there is significant borrowing of this kind that entails interoperability, I do believe that fair use is something that parties will start thinking about as the next battleground if they're willing to jump into litigation. Right? Fair use is cost-intensive. It involves litigation. It's not something that can be determined in the abstract, given how fact-intensive it is. So in short, I think the tech companies don't have too much to worry about. In many ways, it reaffirms the practice of existing borrowing, and it, it, it recognizes the value of interoperability in computer programming. But um, And that's primarily because the court does not resolve the question of copyrightability, which it leaves for another day. Thanks for being in the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Professor Sham Balganesh of Columbia Law School. It was day nine of the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. Chauvin's defense attorney has been arguing that Floyd's death was caused by drugs, heart problems, and other health ailments, not by Chauvin's knee on his neck. Today, Dr. Martin Tobin, a lung and critical care specialist who is also well-versed in fentanyl deaths, took the stand and refuted that defense. Here's Prosecutor Jerry Blackwell questioning Dr. Tobin. Do any of those conditions have anything to do with the cause of Mr. Floyd's death, in your professional opinion, whatsoever? None whatsoever. And uh, again, what was the cause such that those conditions don't matter? The cause of death is a low level of oxygen. Joining me is Richard Fraze, a professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. Has the prosecution built an overwhelming case so far, would you say? Well, no, although if you ever watch a trial, it's always amazing how convincing the prosecution case seems when it's only subject to cross-examination. And then when the other side gets up and starts to poke holes and produce its own 
experts, then you can turn around and say, wow, uh, it's not a strong uh, prosecution case at all. And, you know, what should I think? So we're going to have to wait and see what the defense case looks like. But I would say that the the prosecution has, has done a very good job of laying out its key themes, anticipating even before the cross-examination, anticipating where the defense is going to attack most forcefully. So particularly on the issues of causation of death uh, by Derek Chauvin and justified use of force, I think they've made as strong a case as they can. We'll have to see if the defense can come back. I think the on use of force, I've never heard of a police killing a prosecution. There aren't that many of them. I've never heard of one that had so many police officers testifying against the police officer that's on trial. You keep hearing that the blue wall has crumbled. Is that particularly effective for the jury to have police officers within his own former police department, the police chief, testifying against him? I would think so. I don't know how the, other than the kind of questions that we've seen in cross-examination pointing out, well, how long has it been since you arrested somebody? Did you ever arrest anybody? Do you, do you understand that officers have discretion and have to make decisions on the street? Uh, yes, uh, yes, yes, uh, the witnesses say. So, you know, we know that the, the defense has, has tried to limit the damage that's been done. They may at some point, just as the defense is, is essentially trying to blame the victim uh, because he, he use drugs, they will also perhaps try to point the finger at uh, the police department and say all of these people are just trying to shift blame to this poor officer, Chauvin. Uh, they may try that tactic, but I think, I think I'm guessing that, that the jurors will be impressed by the police testimony against Chauvin. Yesterday, video was played, and the question was whether George Floyd said, I ate too many drugs versus I ain't do no drugs. And Uh some of the reporters said that the jury started to perk up during this, where they had been, you know, they'd been entranced during the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but not so much during the use of force experts. But here they started to listen carefully Do these particular words make a difference? Because the prosecution has admitted that Floyd did drugs. Yeah, and I I thought that was a bit of a tempest in a teapot because uh, even if he said, I ate too many drugs, uh, and even if Chauvin heard that comment, uh, that's just another red flag. This is somebody who, who may be in serious medical distress, and you need to be careful that you don't push him over the edge. So I I think it cuts both ways. And I I can imagine the jurors probably thought, well, our job is to to decide the facts. Here is a contested factual issue. We have ears, uh, so we can decide ourselves what he said. Uh, So it doesn't surprise me that they perked up. There was testimony about the pills found in Floyd's car as well as the police car. Is that something the prosecution introduced in order to take the bite out of the defense introducing it? Yes, uh, that's a, a standard a standard move uh, in litigation. Uh, if you know something bad is going to come out, introduce it yourself. Uh, above all, to show you're not hiding anything, but also to put characterize it in a certain way. That is, so if you wait until the other side presents it, they're going to 
characterize it their way, and that would be the first time the jury hears it. So first impressions are important. So it's absolutely standard for uh, one side to to present uh, damaging information that they know the other side is is going to want to introduce anyway. In a normal case, you wouldn't have the video that you have here, video from different angles. So I'm wondering how much experts testifying about the use of force matters in a case where you have the video and you see what was being done. Well, I, I guess I'd say two things about that. One is the, the experts can can address the, the very important question of whether this was unreasonable force for a police officer in that situation. So uh, the jury can see what's happening. The jury doesn't know uh, from a police perspective and police po- good police policy, uh, was this okay? So that's what you need the experts for. And the video, even though the jury can see it, it's very important that the experts can see it because then uh, they, they can't be dismissed as, well, you're talking in abstractions. You weren't there. Uh, we were all there, <laughs> and the experts uh, can look at it as if they were there and say, I, I, I know what was happening there. Uh, this, I'm not talking in general terms. The defense said in its opening statement and is pushing the, the idea that the officers at the scene were distracted by this hostile crowd. Has there been any momentum for that defense? Well, it is, yeah, it's one of the, the themes that the defense uh, can, keeps bringing up uh, and I'm, I'm sure will continue to bring up, uh, if for no other reason than just to uh, generate in another way some sympathy for the defendant uh, who uh, in, in, otherwise, just to judge by the cell phone video, which doesn't show much of the crowd, uh, there isn't much sympathy for the defendant, uh, especially since the, the crowd is, if anything, raising red flags and warning the Chauvin that what you're doing is dangerous. Uh, so the the uh, the defense wants to to suggest that that Chauvin and the other officers were distracted from Floyd uh, and Floyd's condition by this angry crowd. Uh, and then the jury, uh, we'll have to see if the, uh, how the jury takes that. But uh, I, I guess the, the expert testimony uh, addressed that too, I believe, uh, and said, well, it doesn't appear that the officers were ever in any danger or that the crowd was ever showing any serious interest in intervening. Uh, and again, what's good policing? What does a a well-trained and conscientious police officer do in a situation like that? Uh, they, they, they don't let themselves get distracted by the, the crowd. I've heard time and again that this is going to come down to the cause of death and a battle of the experts. Do you agree with that? Well, it is. The cause of death is uh, an an essential element of all three homicide charges. So it is the uh, as is justified force uh, so that those are those are the issues the defense has to keep hammering on at least raise a reasonable doubt for uh, on causation or and or a reasonable doubt on justified force. I don't think it's just a battle of the experts. Uh, I think the way the prosecution has, has laid this out uh, sort of builds to the experts, but doesn't rely on them uh, totally uh, for cause of death. So 
you have the initially uh, a, a large number of people who just saw the the, the video or, or were there on the scene uh, and were shocked and 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 uh, disturbed by what they thought what appeared to be excessive force, uh, and then you have the the uh, the use of force testimony. Uh, a lot of that was essentially saying. You didn't need to continue using this level of force. Your force was becoming increasingly less necessary minute by minute and increasingly more dangerous. These procedures can kill somebody. Well, that leads right into the causation uh, argument. Yes, the procedures are dangerous and they can kill somebody. And in fact, somebody did die. Uh, so that tends to support the idea that it wasn't just a coincidence uh, that Mr. Floyd died at that moment. Uh, it was because of the stresses that the, the officers were placing on him ment- physically and mentally. I take it, though, that the defense is going to have experts that say he died because of the drugs in his system. Yes, and that's that's a possibility. Again, I think the prosecution will say uh, all we have to prove is that the officer's actions were a substantial causal factor, not the only causal factor. Uh, and if there are pre-existing conditions that make the, the victim more vulnerable, uh, well, you take your victim as you find them is a common legal expression. Uh, and even if there these are conditions that aren't known to the defendant, uh, the defendant's action uh, in, the, in the state's view pushed uh, the, the victim over the line uh, in, into death. Uh, and again, the, the prosecution will argue it's, not, it's lo- not likely that Floyd happened to die just at that moment from these pre-existing conditions. I wanted to get your reaction to the testimony of Floyd's girlfriend, who was called under a legal doctrine in Minnesota called Spark of Life. I hadn't heard about that before. Yeah, and I'm, I, I have no expertise on that. And, uh, I'm not sure I'd, I'd ever even heard about it before. <laughs> it, it, as a general matter, it, you would think that each side wants to humanize their, their uh, client or their, their particular uh, uh, person of interest. So the, the Defense usually wants to humanize the defendant. Uh, he's not a monster. You know, he has a family. There are people who care about him. And in, in this case, the, the client uh, of the prosecution, in a way, is George Floyd, also the public, of course. So they want to, to show that this isn't just just one more criminal being arrested. Uh, this, this is somebody who had a, uh, a life, uh, had ups and downs, uh, in, including drug use. Uh, but it is uh, uh, it is a way to 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 get past sort of abstractions and say no this is, this is or was a living breathing human being uh, whose life was was lost. Uh, I am a little surprised uh, to hear again. I have no expertise. I was a little surprised to hear that this isn't commonly. As far as what's happening in the courtroom, you have prosecutors, these shifting prosecutors doing the questioning and the opening statements. And on the other side, you have, at least in the courtroom, the one defense attorney and his legal assistant. Does that have any impact on the jury in that either you think that this defendant is overwhelmed by the prosecution's team or the jury is not able to connect with any one prosecutor? I'm sure the defense will will try to suggest that or argue that you know I, I don't have this huge team of 
of lawyers that uh, the other side has. All Mr. Chauvin has is me. Uh, I'm sure that they'll they'll try and use that, uh, but um, I don't I don't know if that that will be effective or not. The publicity before is one thing, but the publicity during the trial and the fact that you have protesters outside every day that the jury has to go past, I'm wondering if that might have an effect or might be after trial, if he's convicted, an appeal issue. Sure. Well, there is obviously a great concern, which the trial judge is well aware of and the prosecution is well aware of, uh, that uh, there, there, we have to give uh, Mr. Chauvin a fair trial. We all want that so that if he's convicted, uh, no one says, well, it was a show trial. It was rigged trial. Um, so we, we, we don't want uh, a, a conviction that where the jury uh, felt pressured. I, I believe that the, the jury is not only their identity is being kept secret for now, uh, but I believe they're coming and going in a way that they, they don't see much of the crowds. Uh, but uh, we'll have to see uh, if there's a conviction uh, and then some juror speaks out, uh, that would add strength to uh, a, a defense appeal uh, that the, the jury was tainted. Finally, it seems as if it would have avoided some appellate issues if the judge had moved the trial out of Minneapolis. Well, but as the judge said, where are you going to move it to? Uh, this this case has such wide publicity, uh, not just in Minneapolis, but around the country and around the world. Uh, it, it would be difficult to find uh, another court in Minnesota that wouldn't have many of the same problems and would probably have less court security. Uh, and of course, the the logistics of holding a trial outside of, of Minneapolis for all the attorneys and the witnesses uh, are much, uh, much greater. So uh, it's it's not surprising to me. It's a hard, hard decision. I'm sure the defense will uh, appeal on that ground. But uh, judges judges have substantial discretion in deciding whether uh, all things taken into account, whether the trial needs to be moved somewhere else. And I, I'm pretty sure that on that issue, the trial judge will be upheld. Thanks for being on the show. That's Professor Richard Fraze of the University of Minnesota Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to our Bloomberg Law Podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weekday at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio. Minnesota Law School about the trial.